morning. I'd like to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. We're continuing our study in the little epistle of Yehuda, commonly known as Jude. This book was written by the half-brother of Yeshua, our Lord. After he does a brief introduction, he tells them that he began to write to them about their common salvation, but somehow he got interrupted and he was compelled to write to them that they earnestly contend for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. We ended last time with verse 4 that says, For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long before marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Yeshua the Christ. Now what does he mean when he says, that they were long before marked out for this condemnation. Remember we talked about this last time, which was actually two weeks ago? This has nothing to do with predestination. Alright? That's not what he's saying in this verse. It simply means that the judgment of the apostates had been written about in the past. Long before marked out is grapho, is written about for this condemnation. In other words, the Lord has written about the condemnation that comes upon apostates. Now, what is an apostate? We talked about this just doing a little review here. The word apostasy is from the Greek word apostasia. It means defection from the truth. Now, I believe that apostasy involves someone, a believer or unbeliever, who turns away from the truth. Most people will say, they will say an apostate is only an unbeliever. And I think that we looked at that last week. We saw, or couple weeks ago, we saw that uh, it's hard to tell from the text. He says some of them are definitely believers. Some of them probably weren't believers. But having said that the Tanakh teaches that apostates will be judged, Jude now illustrates the truth of divine judgment upon apostates. He cites three historic instances that establish the certainty of the fate that awaits those who fall away from the truth. In verse 5, he says, Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. Verse 5 talks about the judgment on apostate Israel. Verse 6 talks about the judgment on apostate angels. Verse 7 talks about the judgment on apostate Gentiles. In light of the past week's Supreme Court's decision, it was hard for me not to want to jump right to verse 7 and deal with Sodom and Gomorrah, but we'll hold off on that for a couple more weeks, alright? We will get to that. Jude reminds believers, in verse 5 here, of Jewish history as it relates to their present situation. He says, now I desire to remind you. You know, throughout the Scriptures, we find Yahweh says some truths over and over again. This is because we tend to have really bad memories when it comes to spiritual things. Even though we knew something or we learned something, we need to have that truth reinforced. We need to be reminded. We need to think about it repeatedly. We need to go over it and over again until it sinks in and it actually becomes part of us. We see this truth taught in 2 Peter. Peter says, Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things. He's, I'm going to keep reminding you. He says, now watch what he says. Even though you already know them. I know you know this, but I'm going to remind you of it. And have been established in truth, which is present with you. Paul says this same thing. He reminds his readers. In Philippians 3.1, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble But watch what he says, it's a safeguard for you. You know, people, we learn through repetitions. That's one of the principles of learning is repetition. You've got to go over and over again. Now, often, in our culture, people were only interested in hearing new things. It's all, I want to hear something new, something exciting. We don't like reviewing. Sometimes we're just like the Athenians in Acts 17. It says, now the Athenians and the strangers... Visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. I just want to hear something new. And listen, it's great to learn new things. You know that. I love learning new things. But we also need to be constantly reminded of what we already know. This is exactly why we need to continually be reading our Bible over and over. It's not like you read the Bible and say, okay, I read that. 
That's good. No, you read it over and over and over because you're constantly being reminded of what you know that you didn't know you knew. You're like, oh yeah, I forgot about that. As we read through the book of Jeremiah, we see chapter after chapter, verse after verse of Yahweh underscoring the point that He is going to judge His people. As you go into the book of Jeremiah, it almost becomes hard to read these continual promises of judgment. He's continually saying the same thing. His people, Israel, have been unfaithful. So He's judging them. His judgment is a severe and a terrible judgment. So Jude is saying, Remember what happened to Israel. He's warning about apostasy, turning away, and then he says, now let me give you a first illustration. Remember Israel. Israel turned away, and they were judged. Then he says, though you know all things once for all. So he's reminding them of what they knew. Now does the phrase once for all ring a bell? We looked at that in Jude already. It's the same adverb. Papox, used in verse 3 to indicate that these believers had a written record of the faith. This seems to be the implication here too. The Greek word hapox refers to something done for all time with lasting results, never needing repetition. Jude is implying he shouldn't have to remind them of anything because they have a written record of this. They have a written record of Israel's history. So what is it that they know that he's reminding them of? That the Lord after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. He saved them. He destroyed the unbelievers. Now, let's stop here for a second. Let me ask the question, who is the Lord here? Who is it that saved the people out of Egypt and then destroyed the unbelievers? Who is the Lord? Yahweh? That's the right answer. Huh? Okay. Which member of the Trinity do you think it's referring to? Father, Son, Spirit. (laughs) The ESV puts it this way. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt. Now we don't think of that. You think, well, you know, he doesn't come on the scene until the New Testament, right? So it's all just the Father back there. Well, the New English Translation note states this. The reading Jesus, Jesus, is deemed too hard by several scholars since it involves the notion of Jesus acting in the early history of the nation Israel. However, not only does this reading enjoy the strongest support from a variety of early witnesses, but the plethora of variants demonstrate that scribes were uncomfortable with it, for they seem to exchange kurios, Lord, or theos, God, for Jesus. Though P72, now that's just one of the manuscripts, P72 has the intriguing reading, Theos Christos, God Christ, for Jesus. As difficult as the reading Jesus is in light of Jude 1.4 and in light of the progress of Revelation, Jude being one of the last books in the New Testament to be composed, it is wholly appropriate. So he's saying it really fits that Jesus is in there. He is the one that is talking about now Trinitarian theology which Berean Bible Church espouses as Orthodox Christianity, states that the term Lord is a term that applies to all three persons of the Trinity, just as God is. We really shouldn't speak of God. You know, people say, well, God, and then Jesus, and then the Spirit. That's not right to really say that, because that that's like, okay, only the Father is deity, and the other two are not deity. We should say, God the Father, God the Son. God the Holy Spirit, or Yahweh the Father, Yahweh the Son, Yahweh the Holy Spirit, because all three are God. All three are Yahweh. All right. It says that the Lord, after having saved the people out of the land of Egypt. Now, let's stop here for a moment. The story of the Exodus was the most told story of all stories of Israel. The Exodus is the standard of power in the Tanakh. When God wants to display His power, wants to talk about His power, He reminds them of the Exodus. Because that was an awesome display of power. And the Exodus illustrated Yahweh's redeeming love for His people Israel. The greatest story of the whole Tanakh was the story of Yahweh redeeming Israel out of Egypt. And that, of course, became symbolized and memorialized in the Passover. And every year when it came to Passover, they were reminded 
of the Exodus, the great deliverance and the great judgment upon Egypt. And so he says, I desire to remind you, though you know this, you guys have gone over this year after year after year. The Exodus is one of the most dramatic and breathtaking accounts in all Scripture. The Hebrews were enslaved in Egypt. Pharaoh was a harsh taskmaster. The lot of the Hebrews seemed hopeless. It was at that hour in history when Moses is walking along and he notices that there's a bush burning, but it's not being burned up. So he goes over to the burning bush and he is told by Yahweh that he is going to be used to lead Israel out of Egyptian bondage. He has a hard time with that. He doesn't like that idea at all. But he tells Moses that he had seen the affliction of the people of Egypt. He heard their cry for help. He knew of their sorrows. And now he's raising up a deliverer to bring them out of Egyptian bondage and bring them into the promised land. So Moses and Aaron, you know, Aaron has to go along because Moses said, I can't speak, I can't speak. All right, Aaron can talk. He'll go, he'll speak for you. They go into Egypt and they demand Pharaoh to let the Hebrews go free. Well, we have to understand a little background here. Pharaoh was considered a god on earth. Alright? He literally was considered by those people a god. He was an intermediator between gods and the people. So they worshipped Pharaoh as a god. So here goes Moses and Aaron. They're confronting this god in Egypt. It says, Now Yahweh spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, When Pharaoh speaks to you, saying, Work a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff, and throw it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron came to Pharaoh, and thus they did, just as Yahweh commanded. And Aaron threw his staff down before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Now, I don't know about you, but that would get my attention. All right, these guys come in with a staff, they throw it down, and all of a sudden it slithered on the ground, and it's a serpent. The rod and the serpent were both symbols well recognized in Egypt. The rod was a symbol of authority. The snake was the patron deity of Lower Egypt. So, keep that in mind. This is a, this is a, a spiritual battle going on here. Then Pharaoh also called for the wise men and the sorcerers, and they also, the magicians of Egypt. They did the same with their secret arts. For each one threw down his staff, and they turned into serpents, but Aaron's staff swallowed them up. Now, we know how Aaron did it, right? Because Yahweh was behind Aaron and what he did, but how did they do that? People said, this is magic. How do you magically turn a rod into a serpent? Now listen, as I said, the snake was a patron deity of Egypt. I believe the gods of Egypt were doing this. And I believe the gods of Egypt were real gods. Lesser gods, they were real gods. And this was Yahweh against the gods of Egypt. See, it's a battle, it's a showdown. And what happens to their snakes? Well, his eats them all up, and they're like, okay, our snakes lost the battle here. All right? Then it turns back into a staff again. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Now, the ten plagues that go on are each of them an attack against the Egyptian pantheon. Each plague is an attack against their gods. They worshipped Hecht, the frog god. I mean, that seems so ridiculous to me. You're worshiping a frog, okay? Some things might be a little better understood, but a frog, really? And so basically, you know, it's, it's really humorous when you understand what's going on behind everything, and then you see this. You know, it's like God saying, you like frogs? Here's some frogs. And they're everywhere, you know? And even when he says, Moses says, okay, Pharaoh says, all right, all right, get rid of them. I'll do what you want. And Moses says, okay, when do you want me to get rid of them? What's he say? Tomorrow. Tomorrow. It's like, what? One more night with the frogs. (laughs) You know, I enjoy our frog god. It's just ridiculous. Well, this idea of them being gods and the showdown between the gods finds support in Numbers 33.4. It says, while the Egyptians were buying all, burying all their firstborn, whom Yahweh had struck down among them, Yahweh had also executed judgments on their gods. He was showing. He was superior to all deities. So he defeated all their gods and he leads his people out of Egypt, out of bondage. Exodus 13 says, Now when Pharaoh had let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the Philistines, even though it was near. For God said, The people might change their mind when they see war and return to Egypt. Hence God led the people around by way of the wilderness to the Red Sea. And the sons of Israel went up in martial array from the land of Egypt. He goes on in verse 20 to say, 
Then they set out from Succoth and camped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. Yahweh was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way in a pillar of fire by night. Now, you got to keep this in mind, people. They're not just a bunch of people wandering around. I don't know where we're going. In front of them is this pillar leading them. They see it. All of them see it. At night is the fire lighting up everything, and they're following this pillar. All right? They gather at Succoth from their homes and their farms to the land of Ramses, which is the land of Goshen. Succoth was a military base on the eastern border of Egypt, and it was large enough for a great number of people and flocks to assemble to depart from Egypt in an orderly fashion. So they're all lined up. They're ready to lead out into the wilderness to head to the Red Sea. Exodus 14.1 says, Now Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Tell the sons of Israel to turn back and camp before Baal Seoth, or between Pahiroth, between Migdol and the sea, and you camp in front of Baal Seoth, opposite by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the sons of Israel, they are wandering aimlessly in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. Thus I will harden Pharaoh's heart, He will chase after them, and I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh. And they did so. All right. They are leaving the highway. The Hebrews travel along this Wadi Watir, it's called. A Wadi is a a dry riverbed. When When the area floods, the rivers cut, they'll fill this thing right up. So it's basically the bed of it is all sand. And the river gushes through here when they have the heavy rain season. But now it's a dry riverbed. It's a pathway. And they're going through the Wadi Watir. But you notice it's just canyons on both sides. All right, This is an actual picture of Wadi Watir. It's a natural road through the mountain gorge. The Israelites would have been traveling for close to a week. Because the journey from Succoth to Piharath in the western coast of the Gulf of Aqaba was about 200 miles. So they traveled night and day. To put as much distance between them as possible. Now you figure there's 600,000 men, plus women, plus children, older folks. They would have the number, estimates are between 2 to 3 million people. That's a lot of people moving together at one time. And with them, they've got their clothing, their bedding, their food, their shelter. They're carrying their flocks, their herds, their fowls, whatever else they had. They're moving out. Remember, they plundered Egypt of all the gold. So they're carrying all the gold with them also, all right? And they're heading down through this wadi. Now the wadi watir leads through the mountain opening to the middle of a wide sandy beach on the Gulf of Aquaba. So they come down this wadi watir and they end up on the beach. The beach of Nuebe. It's large enough for Israel to encamp by the sea. Um, it's about 4.25 miles by 2 miles wide. And this is a satellite picture of it. So it appears really clear on satellite. You can go to Google Earth and look it up and Go to Nueve Beach and you can see the canyon, you can see the beach they were on. Now the only entrance to the beach at Nueve is by the Wadi Watir. But on the northern end of the beach was an Egyptian fortress. And that fortress is still standing today. It's right over there on that coast. So they would have prevented them from going north on that beach because there's a fortress there. So they're trapped. They're trapped between Migdal and the sea. Migdal was a watchtower above the mountains which Egyptians observed shipping movements. The Egyptians had these different watchtowers along the mountains and they would use mirrors as signal or fires at night to signal. So Pharaoh knew what was going on. He knew where Moses was. He knew where the children of Israel were. He would have been constantly posted of their progress. They had entered the gorge and he considered they're shut in by the mountains. He knew this land. He knew, okay, they're stuck. There's no place for them to go now. For Pharaoh will say of the sons of Israel, They are wandering aimlessly in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. He thinks they're done. There's nowhere for them to go. So he gets emboldened and says, I'm going to go get them. They're trapped on this beach. Now, skeptics claim that Israel didn't cross the Red Sea, but marshland near Succoth called the Sea of Reeds, which is in the vicinity of the Suez Canal. Well, that might provide a plausible explanation as to how the Hebrews crossed, but it doesn't explain at all how Pharaoh and all his armies and his chariots and horses drowned in the water. See that you got to get both. They got one's got groups got to get through, the other's got to get dead. So if it's six inches of water, it's a miracle either way, you know. Well, you you could drown if you if you hold their faces down. (laughs) I think horses would have a hard time drowning in that. All right.
God's word says this, For the horses of Pharaoh, with his chariots and his horsemen, went into the sea, and Yahweh brought back the waters of the sea on them. But the sons of Israel walked on dry land through the midst of the sea. One group drowned, one group went through. Now notice what Isaiah says. Isaiah 43, he says, I am Yahweh, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Thus says Yahweh, who makes a way through the sea and a path through the mighty waters. Yahweh's making, made a way for them to get through. Who brings forth the chariot and the horse, the army and the mighty man, they will lie down together and not rise again. So he's making a way for his people and he's also judging these other people. They're going to lay down, not rise again. Now the gulf of Aquaba is over a mile deep. The western Sinai shoreline drops underwater at an angle about 45 degrees. In other words, they're on the beach here, but let's say God parts the waters like the scripture says. Well, then they got a huge thing they got to go down to get to the bottom of this thing because it's a mile deep, and then they got to go across and they got to climb up the cliffs on the other side. Now that would have been kind of difficult. So how do you do it? Well, from the Wewe Beach, a massive sandbar, almost a mile wide at its summit, slopes gently six degrees until across the gulf, 900 feet wide, or it's 900 feet deep, this sandbar, and rises at the eastern end so it meets the angle. And here is a, a nautical chart of Nueve and the beach there, and you can see where the red arrow is there. You can see that it's much shallower there. All right, This is this sandbar from the Wadi Watir, when the rivers rushes, the sand rushed out in this area. And there's another wadi on the other side, and it's dumping in, so it's got a sandbar all the way across at that beach there. The distance from Nuebe to Baal Sethon at the opposite coast is 11 miles. And so we got this formed, this sand bridge. They say, well, it's naturally formed. Yeah, it's naturally formed by God, all right, on this section. And so now they can walk through. As we just looked at Isaiah 43, that calls this land bridge a path in the mighty waters. So Moses and the Hebrew children, they're trapped. They're on this beach. What are they going to do? Where are they going to go? Well, Exodus 14, 19 says, The angel of God, who had been going before the camp of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. So it came between the camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel, and there was the cloud along with the darkness. All right, so they're going through the Wadi Watir. They're on the beach on the other end. And here comes Pharaoh and his army. And God says, nope, we're going to stop right there. And there's a pillar of fire there and they can't get through. So they're just kind of stuck there. All right. It says, yet it gave light at night. Thus the one did not come near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And Yahweh swept the sea back by a strong east wind all night. And turned the sea into dry land, so the waters were divided, and the sons of Israel went through the midst of the sea on dry land, and the waters were like a wall to them on the left hand and on the right. Now, the question I ask is, how did the Israelites get across the sea with this strong east wind blowing? The wind is blowing, holding the waters back. How did they walk through that strong, mighty wind that's blowing on them? Well, Exodus 15.8 says, At the blast of your nostrils, the waters were piled up. The flowing water stood up like a heap. The deeps were congealed in the heart of the sea. Now, the Hebrew word for congealed here is kapha, which means to thicken, uh, like curdled milk or like frozen water. So the divided sea literally becomes walls of solid ice. And you got these two walls on each side, and they're frozen, a thousand feet high. And as the wind abated, the Hebrews walked unhindered for 11 miles across this land bridge to the sea floor, of the seafloor to the other side of the shore. All the while, the pillar of fire of the cloud protected them so the Pharaoh can't get in there until they get through on the other side. Now, you say, well, that's crazy, this stuff, you know, how would it freeze? Well, there's a principle by which God froze this walled-up sea, and people understand this, all right? The desert dwellers understand this. The villagers in Iran, they'll erect parallel stone lines, and towards night, they'll dump water in there as the temperature falls. And as the wind blows through those two walls, it blows, it freezes the water in the desert, just like this does. So this, they're going through, and you got these two walls of water. There's no wind anymore, so now they can get through. The water's frozen. If they get through, they get to the other side. They're done. They're safe. 
As the day dawn, the pillar moves, the Egyptians go after him. Alright? Uh, the walls start to thaw out. <laughs> and not only these big hunks of ice, but the sea just comes back in, covered the chariots, covered the horsemen, the host of Pharaoh, they're done. They're all drowned in the sea. I've seen underwater slides and video by Jonathan Gray, whose team found this site, and that shows the remains of the Egyptian chariot wheels. This is a chariot wheel, the axle and the wheel on top. They found a lot of these there. They're four, six, and eight-spoke chariot wheels, and these chariot wheels are identified by the Department of Antiquities in Cairo as belonging to the 18th dynasty, which would have been the time of Pharaoh. They found a bunch of horse hoofs in this water on this land bridge. You're thinking, what are the horses doing in there? You know, they found chariots. They found a lot of different chariot wheels. Like I said, these, these photos are available. There's videos available of people going down there and diving and showing you this stuff. You're thinking, I wonder how that got there. So, through all the plagues, the Lord demonstrates that He was the God of creation. At the end of the narrative in Exodus, Israel looks back. They're on the other shore. They look back over at this beach, and this beach is totally empty now. There's no people. And they also think back of the devastated Egypt that they left. Egypt is destroyed. There's no animals. There's no vegetation. The land in which creation had been undone. And that's, I think, the picture here of the Exodus. You know, God is undoing the creation there. He just totally destroys it. And Israel is reminded that her Redeemer is the Lord of creation. He who had just reduced order to chaos was the same one who had previously ordered chaos. In the creation. And they're realizing this is the God of glory. So he delivers the people. They're on the other side. The Egyptians are dead. It's over. And so the people of Israel, remembering the awesome power of Yahweh, faithfully worshipped and served Him all the days of their life and lived happily ever after. No? That doesn't, shouldn't that be how the story goes? I mean, what, what more could they have Seen what more could they have been through, and, and now they're, I think, going to be faithful servants. Well, no. Jude says, subsequently, he destroyed those who didn't believe. After delivering them from Egypt, after all that happened there, there still were people that didn't believe. They didn't trust him. Jude is warning his readers don't turn away from Yahweh because he judges those who do. The writer of Hebrews gives his readers this same warning in Hebrews chapter 3. He says, But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm till the end. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me in the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for forty years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said they always go astray in their heart. They did not know my ways as I swore in my wrath. They shall not enter my rest. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. So in Hebrews, in the first six verses of chapter 3, the writer exhorted his readers to consider the faithfulness of Yeshua. And follow that faithfulness. Because faithlessness, I don't think, is any more strikingly illustrated than the history of Israelites in the wilderness. The goodness of God, who had raised up this leader Moses, had brought them safely out of the misery of the bondage of Egypt, had never failed them. Yet over and over again they rebelled against Him and behaved as if He were their enemy instead of their deliverer. In verse 8, the Spirit refers to a specific incident in the history. The event is called, When They Provoked Me. The King, New King James refers to it as the rebellion, which is referring to an historical event in the life of Israel. We're going to look at Exodus 17. Israel was delivered from Egypt. They're now in the desert. Their destination is the promised land. But before they can enter the promised land, they have to go through the desert. And the desert is a place of testing. Yahweh wants them to trust Him. He can meet and solve every problem they face. Now think about all they've just been through. They should have some confidence in God, don't you think? Okay, whatever. Bring it on. You know, whatever happened. I mean, 
When you go through an event like that, it just kind of makes you like, bring it on. When I was in that plane crash, all right, when we got on the ground, we're all alive. I got out of that plane and I was bulletproof, okay? I mean, some people came over when the ambulance got there. They were telling us, you got to do this, you got to do that. And I'm like, you're not telling us what to do. You see that plane? We just walked away from that, you know? And I mean, they're calmed down because I was just full of myself more than usual because look, I just lived through a plane crash, you know? Well, look at all they just come through. You know, you'd think they'd have confidence in their God. Well, let's look at Exodus 17. Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin, according to the commandment of Yahweh, and camped at Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. Now, Yahweh had led them to where they were. Remember the pillar, the cloud. They're not wandering around. Where do we go next? You know, they're following the Lord. It should have been very clear to them exactly where God wants us. We followed Him here. But, there's no water for them to drink. Now, no water is a test. Every problem we face in life is a test. Given by God to make you stronger, to strengthen your faith. No water is a serious problem when you're in the desert. Okay, and you got two million people in the desert, nothing to drink. Uh, what do we do? But Yahweh gave them the problem. Why? To help bring into focus that He delivered them by His power and he could save them. He could care for them. What Yahweh wanted from his people was, will you trust me? Look what I just did. Look what happened. Can you trust me? All they saw, they seemed to have a problem doing this. Two million people and livestock in the desert, no water. What should they have done? They should have trusted God. This is cool. I can't wait to see what you're going to do, Lord. After all you've done, is no water in the desert a problem for God? No. <laughs> Not after all they just saw. And think about what these people had just witnessed. All the things that happened in the Exodus. And they had already been through a no water situation before at Marah. And they had seen God provide water already. So this is like a no-brainer. Imagine being there with Israel and seeing all they had seen. And now you're at Rephidim there's no water. What should you do? Hmm? Yeah, hit a rock, that's right. You should thank God for the opportunity to see His power displayed. That's what we should do when we get in a bad situation. I can't wait to see how you're going to deal with this one, Lord. This is cool. You're in control, you can handle it. Notice how they responded. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test Yahweh? The word quarrel is from the Hebrew word reeb, and it means to complain. Why are you complaining to me? The noun is Meribah. But the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, Why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Look at, no, why now have you, Moses, why did you bring us? Did they think Moses did all that? All the plagues, all the miracles, all, first of all, if they did think he did it, they should not be ticking him off. <laughs> really? Come on. If you think he did, then watch what you say to Moses. Moses, please, sir, you know, I'd be very careful what I said. They're forgetting that God isn't behind all this. So Yahweh has Moses strike the rock and water gushes out enough to feed two million people with livestock. Water. He provides water in the desert. The people drink. And he named the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel. and Because they tested Yahweh saying, is Yahweh among us or not? Massah means testing. Meribah means complaining. Meribah is the Hebrew equivalent of the Greek rebellion. They tempted the Lord. And they're asking here, is Yahweh among us? What do you think? How do you think he got through the water? How do you think the army's all dead? How do you think you got out of Egypt in the first place? This is an evil heart of unbelief. It's just always questioning. Not trusting. So we move from Rephidim to Kadesh. Rephidim is near Egypt. It's the place where the Israelites came from. Kadesh is near Canaan, the place the Israelites are going. So they get near Canaan, and God tells them, send in some spies to spy out Canaan. Send in 12 men, check out the land I'm sending you, see how great it is, Come back and tell the people and let's get in there. Alright? Numbers 13. But the men who had gone up with him said, We're not able to go up against these people. They're too strong for us. 
So they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone in spying it out is a land that devours the inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great size. There also we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, are part of the Nephilim. And we became like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. Listen, God told them, this is the land, I'm giving it to you. And again, they're just not trusting Yahweh. Grasshoppers is a good exaggeration here, okay? What's the, the average Israelite's about five feet tall. All right, that would mean that these people would have to be 300 feet tall. These were giants, there's no doubt. The Nephilim were giants. There's giants in the land, but they weren't 300 feet tall. They weren't quite that big. They're exaggerating a little bit. Have you ever done that? You ever exaggerate your problems? I will never get through this one. But if you stop and just think back at what the Lord's done in your life already, you've seen Him do so many things, it doesn't seem to matter how much the Lord does for us, we still can't seem to trust Him. Well, Joshua and Caleb wanted them to trust God. And they spoke to all the congregation of the sons of Israel saying, The land which we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If Yahweh is pleased with us, then He will bring us into this land and give it to us. A land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against Yahweh. And do not fear the people of the land, for they will be our prey. Their protection has been removed from them. And Yahweh is with us. Don't fear them. Well, look at their response. But the congregation said to stone them with stones. Then the glory of Yahweh appeared in the tent of meeting. And all the sons of Israel, Yahweh said to Moses, How long will this people spurn me? And how long will they not believe in me? Despite all the signs which I have performed in their midst. Oh, he's done. He said, they just won't believe me. Now, the Septuagint here translates this verb as pistuo, which is apparently the event Jude is talking about in Jude chapter 5. It illustrates Israel's unbelief. This is an evil heart of unbelief. All they have seen, all he has performed, they will not trust him. Surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs, which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not listened to my voice, shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who spurn me see it. So Yahweh is saying, listen, you just won't trust me, you're going to receive judgment. And this is what Jude is trying to get. Remember Israel. All God did, He took them out of Egypt, but yet they end up dying in the wilderness because they wouldn't trust Him. And Jude saying, you people have to trust the Lord. How long shall I bear with this evil congregation who are grumbling against me? I have heard the complaints of the sons of Israel, which they are making against me. Say to them, as I live, says Yahweh, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so will surely do to you. Your corpses will fall in this wilderness, even all your numbered men, according to your complete number from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me. Everybody who's 20 years old and up is not getting in that land, I promise you. They're all going to die in the wilderness. Because of your unbelief, because you won't trust me, you're not going to get what I promise you. Now let's say there's a million, two hundred thousand adults over the age of 20. Think about this. you got a million, two hundred people over 20. There's approximately 14,500 days of the period of time that they're destined to wander in the wilderness. That means that on an average, 85 people would die under the judgment of God every day. Now, if we allow 12 hours maximum in each day for funerals to be conducted, that means there would have been an average of seven funerals an hour for 39 years. Yeah, you got to wonder that. They're always bearing some seven funerals every hour, okay? Think about it. Seven funerals an hour for 39 That's all they're doing is at funerals. Now, if that wasn't a constant testimony to these people of their sin, nothing could be. Look at your rebellion causes death, 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 constantly. They spend a lot of time burying their dead. And this is the judgment of Yahweh on unbelief. They wouldn't trust Him. And they suffered because of it. And Jude is trying to warn his readers, you need to trust Yahweh 
You need to not be led away by these false teachers. You need to be faithful. He says in verse 11, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And in the context here, speaking of Numbers 14, Israel's rest was Canaan. Their rest was their inheritance. They lost their inheritance because of disbelief, their failure to trust God in the difficult circumstances of life. And now the writer of Hebrews applies this to his generation, as does Jude. And he says, Take care, brethren, that there be not any of you an evil heart, unbelieving heart, that falls away from the living God. He's telling the believers to be constantly watching out, lest there be found in them an evil heart. The Greek word order is a heart evil with reference to unbelief and rebellion. Listen, believers. We all have the potential to doubt God. The capacity of unbelief. Have you ever doubted God? You ever been in that position? Be honest. You know, we're, we're capable of doubting God. And it particularly comes in the pressures, in the stresses, in the tribulations of life. And that capacity seems to rise to the surface and seep into our hearts like a poison, robbing us of our spiritual sensitivity and hardening our hearts. Jude is warning his readers, don't you deny the Lord, or else you're going to be judged. We all need to beware and stay in the Word that our faith may grow strong. Could we apostatize? Well, it happened to Israel. It happened to many other believers. Don't let the trials of testings and the testings of life turn you away from faith in God. Now, the writer of Hebrews gives the same warning that Jude's talking about. He talks about the history of Israel and he's using it to warn him. Well, Paul does the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He says, I don't want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and passed through the sea. He's talking about the same thing. He's bringing them up the same situation of Israel in the wilderness to reminding them that God supernaturally took care of them. You just need to trust Him. He says, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and they all drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from the spiritual rock would follow them and the rock was Christ. Now the word spiritual here refers to the origin of the food. You know, it was spiritually provided. Not that the water was some spiritual water or something. It was water. But it was supernaturally provided for them. Just as their food was. God provided every day manna. Forty years. Now, I can even understand him griping about that. Okay, I don't think I'd like eating the same thing for forty years. But the alternative is you go hungry and you die. Alright? So, God provided for them. Now look, he says, the spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Paul here transfers to Christ a title that in the Tanakh is commonly used for Yahweh. That's Yahweh. Yahweh is our rock. Referring to both His protection and His provision. He is the rock. We see that in Deuteronomy 32. For I proclaim the name of Yahweh, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. So Yahweh is the rock. Paul calls Yeshua the rock, recognizing that Yeshua is Yahweh. The same Christ who supplies all our physical and spiritual needs accompanied Israel and provided for them for everything they had. Now, with such wonderful blessing, you would think that the future was guaranteed. But verse 5, he warns them, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now, this is really an understatement of Scripture. All right, We know that God was not well pleased with them. Any one of them, military age, 20 years old and upward, apart from Joshua and Caleb. Out of all the hundreds of thousands that came out of Egypt, Joshua and Caleb were the only two that entered the Promised Land, along with those that were born on the 40-year journey who trusted Him. Although all were under the cloud, they all ate the bread, they drank the water. Although all of them were blessed, God was displeased with all but two of them. For the rest of them were laid low in the wilderness. Literally, they were strewn in heaps, a graphic description of disastrous consequences of their sin. In verse 6, he says, Now these things happened as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil as they also craved. The lessons from Israel's history warns Christians of what will happen if we also, with our privileges, live carelessly. Paul tells them not to be involved in the sins of Israel. And then he lists the sins here. He says, do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. 
nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. 23,000. Paul is reminding the Corinthians and us that immorality not only displeased God, it disqualified believers. The admonition is very appropriate in our immoral and decadent society. You know, many Christians fall into moral problems simply because they're overconfident in themselves. They enter into a relationship and they may not be wrong in itself, but it offers temptations and they just think, I can handle the temptations. It's not going to bother me. And when it's too late, they fall in. Please understand this. To violate God's principles of morality is to displease the Lord and it's going to cost you. Now, Christians think for some reason we can violate anything God wants and we're okay. He won't do anything. Well, it says here, 23,000 people died because of sexual sin. That's a pretty strong judgment there, alright? They were destroyed by serpents. God sent a bunch of snakes in there to bite them. And there you got an example of 14,700 bodies that are lying in the wilderness dead because, why? He says, and they were destroyed by the serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. 14,700 people died, not because of adultery, not because of murder. They died because they were complaining. Yeah. Hmm. You may not feel you're guilty of idolatry. I don't worship idols. I'm not a fornicator. I'm not having sexual sin. I'm not tempting Christ. Have you complained lately? See, if you believe God is sovereign, all complaining is against God. You complain about the weather? God, I don't like the weather you gave me. It's raining. Well, the farmer's been praying for rain, and you're praying for sunshine because you want to go play, and you've got a conflict there. Well, God does what He needs to do, you know, and you just need to say, God, it's your world. You can do what you want. You know, complaining has become the great American pastime, which is intriguing to me because we are the most decadent, most provided for society in the world, and we're the biggest complainers. How do those two go together? How do you have more than anybody on the planet and yet complain more than anybody on the planet? I don't really get how that works. But we're never satisfied. There's always something more. And can you imagine, Yahweh looks down at American Christianity and thinks, what in the world's wrong? You have everything, and you still gripe, and you still complain. And then you've got American Christianity driven by the prosperity and the health, wealth gospel. Because people want, their lust is unquenchable, so it's like, give me more! Let me join up and sign up this health, wealth gospel. God wants me healthy, He wants me wealthy. That's a perfect thing, isn't it? Who wouldn't sign up for that? And it seems to be working for the preachers at the top of the pyramid scheme. Doesn't work so well for the people. But they just keep hoping it'll get better. Now these things happen to them as an example, he says again in verse 11. And they were written for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages have come. The children of Israel were slain. They were overcome. They were disqualified. They were set aside as an example to the rest of the Israelites of what God thought of lusting and fornication and idolatry and complaining. But this is not the only reason it happened. Paul said they're written for our admission. We need to look at Israel and learn from them. Learn from history. Learn from the past. The history of Israel tells us of God's faithfulness while warning of the consequences of sin. Our God is the same as Israel's God. And neither He nor His standards have changed. He still hates complaining. Notice verse 12. Therefore, let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. You know, there's always people who say, well, that would never happen to me. I won't get involved in that. I'm a good faithful Christian. I would never do that. I would never do this. That scares me when people say that because you're confident. You're proud in what you're able to do. And he says, let the person who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Because temptation is there. Be careful. There's no place for carelessness and complacency in the Christian life. So Jude says, now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all. You know this. You guys know the history of Israel better than anybody. But I just want to remind you. That the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, marvelous, incredible deliverance, later destroyed those because of unbelief. Believers, Jude's message is that Yahweh judges apostates. Those who wander, who fall away from Christ. 
Now listen, the falling away can be theologically. I no longer believe this. I no longer believe that. That will bring judgment. But I think in a lot of cases, the falling away is moral. In other words, oh yeah, I believe God. I believe Christ. I believe Yeshua is God. I believe the Yah. Yeah, everything. I believe all. But I'm going to live like sin. And you think the Lord's just going to wink at it. He didn't for Israel. I don't think He will for you. Now, Christians, understand, if you if you have trusted Christ, you're going to heaven. Jude, we already talked about this in Jude. The security of Jude starts and ends this epistle talking about security. Because he wants you to know you're secure in Christ. But you can get a mighty good spanking along the way. Okay? The Lord can, He disciplines His people. He disciplines His people. The apostasy of Israel and the consequence of it set forth in Jude is to encourage his readers to earnestly contend for the faith and not allow the church to go into apostasy because of the ungodly false teachers who are threatening it. Jude says, don't follow them, don't listen to them, don't go that way because they're judgment there. Now he's only given us one illustration. He's going to talk about angels and then he's going to talk about Sodom and Gomorrah. Both severe judgments of God upon apostates. He's trying to get their attention, people, of the seriousness of this. And believers, today, this day, we need to all earnestly contend for the faith. Because the faith is being attacked left and right. I don't think it will be long in this country when Christian when persecution will be something that happens here. The way it's going. You say something against the homosexual, you're going to go to jail. You're going to be persecuted. The church won't marry a gay couple. Well, then we're going to have problems. So there's going to be problems. Alright? The days are getting darker because the church has fallen away. The church is an apostasy in this country. The church is just all about itself. The messages coming out of the pulpit are all about making you feel good and what God wants for you and He wants you to be healthy, healthy, happy, and wonderful. Everything's about you and no more is it about God. And the Bible is a message about God. It's not about you. It's about God and who He is. And we're called to see Him in the Word of God and fall before Him and love Him and serve Him. That's the calling. Judah's warning. I'm warning. Stay true to the Word of God. Stay true to His calling. Be faithful to Him because He judges sin. Let's pray. Father, we thank You this morning for Your Word. I thank You, Lord, that You love us. You've provided for us incredibly. And yet, Lord, with all You've done, there are times when we question. There are times when we doubt. There are times when we struggle, Lord, trusting You. Lord, I pray that as we spend time in the Word of God, You would strengthen our faith. We would be built up as we read the stories of Old Covenant Israel. We see Your provision. We would be encouraged. And on a day-to-day basis, Lord, we would trust You. We would walk with You in holiness, Lord. Thank You for Your grace toward us, Lord. Amen. Thank you.